Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 160. My guest for today is a filmmaker and documentarian named Dean Leslie. Dean founded the film company Wandering Fever, and that is who he puts out his films through. Being here on quarantine, I've been able to watch a lot of things, as I'm sure all of you have. And so I think if you've been listening to every episode, you know that I ran through last year's roster of Banff Film Festival documentaries. And one of those was a film called Tabang. And that is about a man named Tabang, who is a trail runner and ultramarathon runner in South Africa. So I don't know a whole lot about South Africa in terms of its terrain, and I don't know all the socioeconomic factors that are going on there. So that film, in one sense, was uh, an educational film for me. But watching it, I loved the the storytelling, the character building, and it was just it was it was shot in a really beautiful way. And so I was like, I want to find out who made this. And so I found Dean, and I found Wandering Fever, and then I just started like crushing the his catalog of films, and they're they're really incredible, especially being stuck at home, being able to be transported to somewhere else in the world to see an incredible, pristine, beautiful setting, but also to, to learn these incredible stories about the subjects of his films. I think he's a real, real master storyteller. So I'm you know, super, super excited to get to talk to him today. And through watching his films, I've learned about so many incredible people. We mentioned Ricky Gates in this episode, uh, Mira Ray, who was on the podcast about a half week ago. I learned about her through his films, and then I was able to reach out to her and to get in contact with her. So that was really cool. So I want to thank Dean for that. But yeah, his his, his storytelling is is really unmatched, and I think that you should go over to the Wandering Fever website and knock out some of his films. Some of them are quite short, so they don't require a huge time commitment, but they really pack a punch. They're really cool and I think really meaningful. I don't really know where my love of storytelling began. Um, but I love stories. Maybe, maybe it's from films as a kid. My parents were always really wise in ensuring that I read when I was a kid. I used to do those like summer reading programs at the library where you'd read a certain amount of books and you'd get something. I don't know. I, at one point through school, I remember like you'd get a free Pizza Hut pizza as a kid. Um, Pizza is always a motivating factor. But whatever it was, it's got its hooks in me. Like to where when I was a kid, I would just look out the window of the car on long trips and just like create these scenarios in my head and, and daydream. And so, you know, his his films are, are really right up my alley. And I think that uh, if you check them out, you will greatly enjoy them too. So yeah, I mean... You hear me say this over and over again as I fumble and bumble my way through conversations, but I'm really quite lucky that I'm able to talk to people from all different mediums, places in the world, walks of life, interests that I'm fascinated by, uh, and I get to share, you know, an hour, an hour and change with them to learn about their life and to, to share their story with you. So hopefully, you come away with this learning about some new things and some new people. 
and uh, you know you'll use the rest of your quarantine time to to check some of those things out and those people out. So yeah, please go to the show notes, check the links, give Dean a follow, and check out his future work as well. I have a Patreon account for TV TV that is Patreon.com/slash/TheVoyagesOfTimVetter, and that's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly. Some of the kickbacks are like stickers or T-shirts, postcards from around the world. Once I'm back out in the world, and uh, that that goes to keeping the stories coming and keeps the podcast rolling. All right. Speaking of keeping the podcast rolling, here is my conversation with Dean Leslie. Yeah. So I think that um, I think a, a good place to start and sort of maybe the context for the conversation is the the Tabang documentary because cool. My girlfriend and I have been stuck, obviously, as, as the whole world has been in quarantine. But obviously, New York has been hit really, really bad. Um, so we've, I mean, we've uh, been running through through documentaries, and we ran through the whole list of the the Banff Film Festival, you know, films that were touring for the for the 2019-2020 season. And so obviously we watched yours, and it was really, really a beautiful film. And I think it will will set some of the some of the the context for uh, what I want to know about you and what I want to know about about your work. So you are are born and raised in South Africa. Correct. Yeah. And were you initially part of like the filmmaking community, or were you already part of the trail running community? And do you run yourself? Um, well, no, I started as a filmmaker. Um, first I was a photographer, then film. Um, and I found trail running through film production. Um, and then started running, started running in the mountains probably about 10 years ago. Um, after doing the first couple projects. And so Tabang is also an ultra runner, right? Like ultra running and trail running are not synonymous. Yeah, no, there's, yeah, they're obviously just separated by distance. Um, Tabang is predominantly uh, like a marathon distance trail runner, um, but he has run ultras as well. Um, so he, there's a couple of series. Um, there well, there used to be locally and internationally where you kind of run roughly a marathon distance in mountainous terrain. Um, and that's always his speciality. And the distance for an ultra is like 50K and up? Yeah, 50K and up, and it carries on going up. Wow. You know, I've, I've, I've been many places. I've been fortunate to, to travel often and kind of wide, but I've never been to South Africa. And so in my mind, I would obviously, I know where it is, you know, geographically, I would envision it as being coastal, which it is. But it appeared to me from from your work and some of your pictures and from that documentary that it's also it's quite mountainous. Um, there's also like uh, what, what looked like savanna lands. Like it's it's quite diverse. Is is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, for sure. Especially in in southern Africa, um, it's incredibly diverse. Uh, where I live, I live right on the southern tip. Um, you know, just a few kilometers from the Cape of Good Hope. So I'm right down south. Um, so we have wild oceans, uh, mountains kind of falling into the sea. Um, but then you only need to drive two hours and you can be in deserts or, wow. 
you know, kind of windswept coastline. Um, we have dense, more tropical style climate up in the northeast, um, and it's much drier on our west coast. So if you go up West Africa, it's, you know, it's tropics versus desert, basically. And I was thinking... big mountains in the middle. Cool. I was thinking about this because one of the opening shots for the film has a giraffe and then like one of the at some point you see zebras like are are these maybe this is a quite an ignorant question but like are these things that you're going to encounter when you're trail running is there a lot of wildlife that you have to be aware of um if you if you're in a city precinct like generally like in a metropolitan area it's it's relatively limited right um you know in around the western cape we do have cats in the mountains and baboons and if you run through some of the reserves which most are most if you've like got a diverse section of wildlife you'll be running in a gated reserve um one of the national parks where you will see you know um all sorts depending where you are in the country because the terrain changes so much so does the wildlife um but we still have leopards um in in the like more remote mountains or or wild Wow. Um, but you'd be incredibly lucky to see one. Um, wow. And then a lot of ocean life, obviously, where we are, like whales, dolphins, penguins, seals, and then uh, lots of snakes. Whoa. Um, so that's like the main thing on the trails. Like there's just a ton of snakes. Um, cool. I- I'm going to, throughout this conversation, I'm going to reference you know, a lot of the videos that you've, uh, a lot of the movies that you've made, uh, a lot of the the Wandering Fever stuff. And so there'll be links for that in the show notes and people know that and they can go, you know, use this podcast as sort of a companion piece to the visual aspect, which is the stuff that you do. So um, I'm going to, you know, implore everybody to do that. But would you also mind, like in your own words, giving like a, a, a brief synopsis of what the film is about? Um. You know, like the obvious obvious one-liner that pops up is like a rags to riches, but that isn't accurate. Um, I think it's a film about a guy, Tabang Madiva, um, who became a professional trail runner against the odds. Um, and so we delve into his life and his background um, and discover where he came from and why why he was an anomaly um, in the sense of his like social economic position as well as cultural. Um, that's kind of general sense, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a pretty profile piece on a guy that comes from a reality that a lot of the people watching in the outdoor world, um, you know, wouldn't interact with daily in terms of what his realities are. Um, so it was just, it was interesting because I've done trail films for over 10 years and there is quite a big like socioeconomic divide um, in the trail world. And here was this guy at the bang and, and the first time I met him was actually in Chamonix. He was out there on a race and I spent four days with him. Just the first few days of filming, I wanted to film him while he was overseas and I happened to be in the area. And if you don't know where he's from, you wouldn't think twice, but knowing where he lives and then seeing him in the streets of Chamonix and he's high-fiving everyone and he's happy and, you know, um, it was quite quite incredible how comfortable he was 
um, but naturally, so not forced. And you know, so that when we approached the film, we wanted to do it in a way that paid tribute to the kind of person he was, because it's not a pity party um, to Bung Stoke. Like he's really happy with who he is and what he's accomplished and what he's got. He's he's happy and he's content. So it wasn't to show how little he has; it's to more show how little he needed. Um, and, you know, he just needed a few opportunities to show what he could do. Mm. Yeah, it's really cool to see, like, the little kids running alongside him and the impact that he has on the community. Is is he someone that you had already known of? Is, is Or do you get pitched an idea from Solomon or anything like that? Yeah, sir. I, I've worked on Solomon films um, for over a decade, nearly, now. Um so I have a good relationship with him. And um, one of my old school friends, um, I've known him since I was six years old, is Ryan Sands. And he's a professional trail runner as well. And so through him, I, I did a lot of projects with him. And he mentioned Tabang to me. And then someone else mentioned Tabang. And then I started digging in over a couple of years, um, just kind of looking into who he was and what he had done. And then we started pitching the film. It took about three years to kind of get the pitch greenlit um, wow. just because it's got to, it's got to align with um, companies like marketing strategies and how it's going to fit. And so we just carried on repitching and repitching until we eventually got a green light on it. It made me think about the logistics of filming as well. And I thought about this for, for all of your films that I watched, but for for the pieces where he's actually running or for the pieces where, uh, or portions of films where, where you're up in the mountains, are you like driving alongside in a car? Are you running alongside? Are you, are you trekking all of your gear up a mountain? Uh, trekking all the gear up a mountain. Wow. Um, that's, uh, so what we do is, um, we use location. So depending on what you're shooting and, um, you know, if it's a, a record attempt or, around you can't do any setups um, but on a piece like this uh, we tracked him at a couple of races and then what we did was we went and found beautiful locations that symbolized the region where he lived um, and we would go then hike out into the mountains and spend a day just kind of filming setup shots and so the tracking shots where you're running that's actually someone running next to him um, wow and with a camera in hand um, and then the shots, I think, with the zebra and giraffe, I think there was a couple there that we actually used the vehicle to track because he was moving so quick. You know, I've had a few filmmakers on, and I've always thought this, but I've never asked it. Um, but, you know, you see the prevalence of maybe in like the maybe in the last 10 years of overhead shots, which I'm assuming is because of drone technology. Uh, like yeah. it, especially in like the outdoor and adventure film world, it's an incredible resource. Even in, actually, you had one film um, set in China, I believe, and there's a an overhead shot of like this interconnected highway system, or even like for Tabang, yeah. uh, like an overhead shot of his village. Like, is it is is drone technology like absolutely necessary now? Like, is that like an, a, a massive game changer in filmmaking? Um. In, like with with film and making a good film, it's telling a good story. Like that's the baseline. Right? So everything else is just dressing on the top of that. 
Um, and, and, and that's how we've always approached it. And technology is like, incredible. It wasn't what it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, when we wanted to get those top-down shots when I first started, we would hike up another mountain and have radio yeah. comms to try shoot top-downs, and it would take half a day for, like, two shots. Um, so it sped things up. It's made it, it's made it possible to move quickly and get a lot of sequences you know, you can get a full sequence in a couple hours if you're shooting fast. Um, so it just allows speed and weight. Um, so, it's, you know, the drones are so tiny now. It's, it's not impossible, um, you know, and this is only the last few years, not impossible to do all of it on your own um, without an assistant or a second camera, um, which is quite unique. And I think that's the biggest thing that technology has given, given given you is that speed and weight combination mm. that results in good quality. Um, and that's how we utilize it. It is overused, but, you know, if you view the drone as a camera stabilizer, um, allowing you to move the camera in unique places where you couldn't use anything else, that's how we try users. Yeah, you mentioned something that, that really, uh, something that I was thinking about when I was watching the films. Uh, I make this first point respectfully. But I think that if I were to tell folks like, hey, I've been watching these films about running, right? They'd probably be like, what? Like, you want to watch somebody run for, what, 30, 30 minutes to, to two hours? Like, I don't understand that. But you do such, an, a, such a beautiful job of storytelling and character building with these people. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition off of Tabang to, to Mira. Um, I discovered Mira through your films, and I was very fortunate this week to be able to talk to her uh, on the podcast, like I called into Nepal. <laughs> She's uh, outside in, in a village outside of Kathmandu. Um, and her, her story is, I think, absolutely incredible. So uh, again, not to put all the weight of, of the storytelling on you right now, but could you, could you give just a brief synopsis of, of who she is and how you came to be involved in telling her story? Yeah, so... Um uh, Mira is a, a Nepalese runner. She uh, was National Geographic Adventure of the Year a couple of years ago, I think, two or three years ago. Um, she's also a former child soldier, and she comes from a very remote uh, valley in Nepal. Um, so we, we went and stayed in her house. and um, Yeah, it's it's, it's quite incredible. Um, they have totally subsistence, like living, growing, breeding animals, everything. They, they're self-sufficient. Um, and the film we did, um, and I'm, there's a few films on Mira. I want to make sure we're talking about the right one. So the one I did was called Dream Trip. Uh, yeah. So we, Salomon wanted to do a interactive contest. Um, where you could submit your dream destination to go run with someone. So you just had to select a place and a runner. Um, and uh, the guy that won had selected Mira um, and obviously in Nepal. Um, and so I'd already known Mira, about Mira and her story because uh, a British filmmaker who's based on Hong Kong, Lloyd Belcher, he made a, a longer film, that film called Mira, on her and I'd seen that and I'd heard about her story and obviously she was in the Salomon team so I'd heard about that and so we went out and took this guy Tyler Corville who had won the contest out into Nepal to meet up with Mira and travel to her home 
um, and they formed quite a unique relationship during the trip. So the film became this kind of dual narrative between Tyler's story and her story and how they learned from each other um, in that process. Um, but, but it was a very, it was a very humbling trip. Um, and she's 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 so wonderful. She's she's a breath of fresh air in the in the outdoor, for sure. Did you run up in the mountains? Yeah, so we did the same thing. We would we would kind of generally base camp in a hut, um, and then we would hump gear up early in the morning, um, and then stay out as long as we could in the cold. Um, we had really bad weather conditions. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and then around her village, we lived, we lived with her family for, I think four or five days. We set up tents outside in the homestead, um, and we took in as much food as we could. Um, and we, we then lived and integrated with them and you can only get to a village by foot. So you, you hike in to the village and there's no road access. And then we stayed out there and then we would just run on the hills around there and help with daily tasks. And yeah, it was a, it was, it was a really good experience. Wow. What, what, what was the altitude like on your, on your, on your running, your work, your productivity? Oh, that trip, we weren't too bad. We were, I think the highest we went was around 4,000 meters. Um, and you're doing it gradually. And so it doesn't really hit you too hard. Um, it's not, I've been, and it's funny though, sometimes you can be at three and a half thousand meters and you can't see straight and you're falling all over the place. And then other times you can go up to 5,000 meters quite quickly and, and feel fine. Um, so, you know, just when you think you've kind of got the altitude thing waxed, um, you, you quickly learn that you don't. Wow. Were there any issues with, uh, like, you know, I'm, a, I'm assuming a lot of a lot of what you have has to have batteries that are charged, and to do that, electricity. Were there any issues with that being in a out in like a rural setting, very rural setting? No, so we 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 scale like yeah, according to the trips, um, depending on how remote we're going to be, um, and so we've got little kits um, that I can take on a job that will allow us to be without any power made like other than maybe two panels on the backpack for like four days. Um, and then we have larger um, panels that we carry in for those, those shoots. And sometimes we'll hire a Jenny as a backup if we can't get sun power. So you generally make a, you can make a plan. You just have like a ton of batteries, you know, 20% of your baggage weight becomes battery power. Wow. Um, do you, you know, she said some, some really like really insightful and really beautiful things as she narrated sections of that film. When you, when you go into a film like that, do you sort of storyboard it out before you film or do you film and, and sort of hope that some of those like magical moments like that happen? Um, to be honest, it depends on the clients um, and, and the project. So as a, because we're talking about mirror that uh, as an example, before I went to Nepal, the idea was to take Tyler there and to make a film about that trip with mirror. So that, that was the extent of the idea, um, before arriving. Um, and I do like shooting like that because you have no preconceived ideas and notions of a place that you've never been to of people you've never met. And so you're not really forcing yourself on them in terms of a, as a storyteller. Um, and then when you're there, you feel certain things and, and, and you obviously have 
these underlying things that you want to say as well that are important to you as a filmmaker. Mm. Um, and I feel like the art of the storytelling there is to really allow someone to be who they are, to represent them through that um, and, and structure that in a way that brings an overall message across that you can kind of take away from someone's life story. Um, and so there's all these layers and they usually pop up during, during the production. But, you know, I do have like a base set of each production of what I need to do. If you're going to a profile piece, like you've obviously got to establish that person, where they're from, what do they do? Um, and so that, you know, that can be like stock standard and applied to any shoot. And then the story kind of emerges through that. Is there a particular uh, filmmaker or storyteller that has uh, influenced you heavily? Yeah, so I, I grew up um, I grew up surfing, and oh. I grew up watching surf films. Through, you know, every every weekend, all all our friends, if there's no waves, you would go to a house and just put VHS after VHS of surf movies. Um, and so I grew up watching the Malloy brothers um, back then. I think they were making films under the Moonshine Conspiracy, and then it became Woodshed Films. Um, and those films, you know, had a certain texture and style and feel, and a lot of it was on 16 mil, um, and that that heavily influenced like the aesthetic that I liked. Um, I always there wasn't often much story to them. And that's why I felt really fortunate when I kind of fell into the trail running world and was asked to start start making running films when there wasn't really much reference of what that was and what that looked like in the action sports industry because I wasn't a runner and like you, I, you know, it feels like the action is quite boring. Um, and so in order to find compelling things, you would go into the like the folklore and the meaning and the depth behind running. Um, and because everyone runs, almost everyone or everyone can run if, you, if you're if able, um, it means you have this wide array of characters, just incredibly interesting people um, that often end up devoting themselves to one of the simplest activities, almost in a religious kind of practice. Um, and they all draw certain things from that as individuals that help them grow and become, you know, compelling and interesting and well-rounded people. Um, and so I really like kind of deep dived into that. I, I really love that idea of taking that aesthetic of surfing um, and surf films and applying that uh, in a story narrative structure um, with, with running. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that, that kind of challenge. Yeah, and I think the in in addition to the characters, obviously these amazing, beautiful uh, physical settings are are present in all the films. And I, when I was watching, um, I was watching the film set in Japan about is it Shinjuku? Yeah, the yeah, it's a Yamabushi um, and. Uh, let me remember now. Um, so the Yamabushi are the the monks that go out into the mountains and use the elements to um, inflict suffering to remind them of like of who they are, you know. Yeah. Um, to get into a deeper sense of yeah. That's so um, cool. Uh, yeah. So I was 
I was watching that and I'm like, oh man, this is so beautiful. And I had this thought in my head that um, uh, you, that was the word shigendu. Sorry if I shigendu. Yeah, no, that's shigendu okay. It was a practice. Okay, cool, cool. Um, but I was thinking about my own travels and, you know, we talk about these uh, natural, beautiful settings and that's, that's one reason why people travel, right? Like, uh, people travel to do Everest. Um, people travel to be in the Andes, in the, in the Alps. In a lot of natural settings now, because of the popularity of social media um, and the accessibility that they now have to, to places, it really kind of kills them. So I'll give a, a brief example. I was in Taiwan, in Taipei City, and there it, it's up near the northern coast of Taiwan, and um, because of erosion on the on the coastline on the north, there's a lot of really cool natural uh, geographic features there. And there's a place called Yelyu, I think it's called Yelyu National Park. And there are these weird sort of mushroom-like uh, rock structures that the sides of it have been eroded away and they look really cool. And so I saw pictures of this online and I was like, oh man, I got to go check that out. It's like an hour and a half bus ride out of Taipei. That's nothing. So I went there and it's just, it's swarming with hundreds, if not thousands of people where you're elbow to elbow, like people are jumping in front of you to get selfies, like you can't experience it at all. And so when I watch your films, I'm thinking like, I would imagine that more and more people are going to be getting into what maybe had been considered extreme, whether it be it trail running or, or hiking to new altitudes just to get you know, a, a piece of, of, of nature as it was meant to be. I don't, I don't know if you see like the, the prevalence of these types of activities increasing uh, as you do this work. Yeah, for sure. Um, like it's, you know, no matter who you are, um, the outside gives you something. Um, and feeling a sense of isolation and wilderness becomes a lot harder um, and you have to go further and, so you need to use these tools of outdoor pursuits to kind of access those special places. Um, you know, I, I, it's just my opinion, but I, I feel a lot of countries, national parks have failed in their mandate um, in order to create wild, sacred spaces. They weren't meant to be theme parks. Um, they were meant to be a space where you could escape, not drive on the highway into a park, stop at a lay-by, take a photo, and then carry on driving because you've now ticked that box for that view. Um, and so I, I feel like with the outdoor pursuits and, and, and the sports, um, it is gaining popularity because that's the only way to get to these places that actually give you what you need. Um, um, I don't know if that kind of answers what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's like, Right on the nose. Um, I mean, you. I'm going to come back to Japan in a second, but you also have a film that's set in in the Arctic, right? Um, yes, I, I've shot in the Arctic a couple times. Um, so I, there was one with a, um, a Swedish athlete that lives in Norway, Emily Forsberg. We did yeah. that about five years ago. Um, and then trying to remember what else we did in Arctic that got released. Um, uh, and then I have shot in Iceland um, as well, um, Norway, Sweden, Finland. 
yeah, like quite all about the Arctic Circle, an incredible place. And then also shot Antarctica 10 years ago as well, which is amazing. Yeah, and the, the film in Antarctica was was also a running film, right? Like the 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 subject was running in Antarctica. Yeah, so 90% of my work of the last 10 years has been mountain running. Um, so like a large body of work of uh, trail running and mountain running. How difficult was that though? Like I'd imagine you have to be incredibly bundled up, like no skin exposure. Like how long can you film outside at, you know, any one stretch of time? Um, it, I, I suppose it depends when you're there. The, the winter times, um, it, it's not the same. You like, you mostly be on skis, but in the summer, it, it's, we shot predominantly the one piece we shot over the summer and it was crazy, like me in a t-shirt. Um, mm. and I, I am from, you know, in the outdoor world, I'm kind of like on the outside of it because I am from the tip of Africa. Um, although a large amount of my work is in North America and Europe, um, snow is alien to me. Um, <laughs> so it's taken me a long while to, to get used to, used to that in the mountains because that's the scariest thing in the mountains is the snow and the ice and not understanding it. Um, I would rather be in raging ocean alone swimming than um, hiking alone through a, a deep, uh, like wilderness alpine area. I'm gonna I'm gonna connect that back to to Japan. So, you know, we just mentioned Antarctica, um, the the Arctic Circle, up being up in the mountains in Japan, where you're sharing the story of almost like a forgotten religion. Uh, that exists only in that place. And now these are things where when I was young, if I was listening, if I was watching like Indiana Jones or, or reading an adventure story, because I loved these things, like I don't think it's a stretch to say that these are, these are the types of things that he'd be doing. So do you, I mean, I ask a lot of people this question when I'm you know, really impressed by, by their work and their life. But when you're, when you're doing something like this, when, like when you're up in the mountains in Japan, um, does this, does this feel like something really special to you or like, is it, has it normalized? Does it feel like work to you? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Cause I have been through quite a change of outlook over the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I took, I do appreciate all the experiences I've had. Um, and I know they're special and unique and thing, and I've done things through film that I would have never done if I was just traveling on my own or backpacking or whatever it was. Um, so film has given me a, a, an incredible, um, like kind of trap door to enter these, like, you know, like almost like an Alice in Wonderland, like the door just leading you into new worlds. Um, it gives you an excuse. It, it, it gives you a reason for being there. And very quickly you can be in an incredible niche community um, that's quite close to outsiders in, you know, whether whatever pursuit it was, whether that was climbing or trail running or whatever it was. Um, did I appreciate it at the time? Probably not. Um, I probably took my work too seriously for too long. I, you know, because I came from a film background and you can never master it, there was this, this continuous process of learning. So, I think in 2018 or 2019 was the first time I was comfortable with my skill level in when you make a promise to a client that you're going to deliver, that you're not scared that you can't do it. Mm. Um, so it took me nearly 10 years to get to that stage. 
And so a lot of those trips that I've done in the last, you know, 10 years were a lot of stress and worry. Like if you can pull, pull off this creative endeavor that you've promised a brand or people that you can do. Um, and I was always trying to find balance in this. And I've come to realize now in, you know, my late thirties that, um, passion and balance are mutually incompatible. Um, you just need to understand what your passion is that so that you can then prioritize your life and make the correct decisions. Um, because it does take everything. Um, in order to excel at something, it, it requires so much repetition and so much practice. Um, in doing that, it is all encompassing. Um, and so a lot of these experiences kind of, I don't feel like I had as much impact on me as they could have because I was so wrapped up, up in making film. Mm. Um, whereas now, you know, when, and this was two years ago, I actually was angry with myself because I hadn't ever consciously, consciously chose to chase film, like to be the best filmmaker. I just did it. And by my choices uh, over a period of 10 years, uh, you know, I'd done really well um, professionally, but I lost out on a lot of other things. And I, I did that knowingly in that process, but uh, when you look back over a long period of time, you're like, shit, I chose work almost all the time. Um, and I didn't choose the other things that I would say to myself. And, you know, you see these quotes and these, these things that like, you know, are true um, about what's important in life. Um, so then to come to like almost an awakening of like, shit, I, yeah, I know all those things are important, but I was, wasn't choosing that yeah. um, actively on a day to day. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I do, I love looking back on the stories and I've started reflecting a lot more and like collecting some of those stories from the trip because it was a total will, you know, I'm just coming out of like a whirlwind decade where we had projects back to back. I would shoot 12 months a year um, or you'd be in post-production. You'd have eight projects on the go all the time, year round. And just, there's a lot of stuff going on. So now I've kind of pulled the handbrake and, slowing it down, picking my projects um, and kind of catching, catching up with the other stuff that is, is important. Wow. So then I don't, I don't know quite what the situation is right now in Cape Town or in South Africa with like the, with the pandemic and everything, but um, are you, are you essentially shut down for now? And is that time then good for you? Cause it lets you slow down. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we in uh, like a military-style hard lockdown. We're one of our strictest lockdowns in the world. Wow. Um, we, can, we can leave. We've just moved down one level. So we now, last three days, we're allowed to go out from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Um, within a 5K radius of our house um, to exercise. But there was before that, it was five weeks of you weren't allowed out at all other than to buy food. Um, wow. So it's been quite a crazy period. Um, I don't know what, what's in store um, the next few weeks. But from my perspective, you know, amidst all the chaos and everything that's happening, been incredibly blessed because we had our first child eight weeks ago. He's eight weeks old. And wow. so this period has just been at home um, just with a new little family and it's kind of learning each other's ways. Oh, that's amazing. If if you were to go out, w were people getting arrested? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're not allowed to walk your dog. 
Wow. <laughs> not a lot of buy, you're not allowed to buy tobacco, you're not allowed to buy alcohol, buy alcohol. Um, they've just allowed the sale for winter clothes now. Um, and so there's lots of roadblocks where you've got to prove what you're doing out if you're not an essential services worker. Um, I think I kind of get that the sentiment is kind of changing now where people were willing to obey, but now people are getting a little bit, yeah. a little bit over it. Yeah, unfortunately, people, people in my neighborhood in Brooklyn have not been obeying so well, um, which is, again, why we have these skyrocketing rates. But anyway, uh, I'll leave that be. So you and I are actually quite close in age, uh, and I say that to say that uh, there's a band I've been listening to for, it's got to be like 20 years now, um, or, or close to it, since I was you know, like a middle, middle to late teen um, and so I think I had first been going through your Instagram account and I saw a shot of sort of like backstage, like, I guess like the area where you walk out to the stage or the green room or whatever for, uh, and then and the picture was of Ben Gibbard. And so I was like, oh, cool. Like maybe this is like a concert shot or something that you were doing. And then after checking out the Wandering Fever stuff and, uh, you know, the, the catalog of your work. I'm like, whoa, okay. So uh, Ben Gibbard, who is the singer of Death Cab for Cutie and the songwriter, is also a trail runner. <laughs> and this is something I had, I had no clue about. I would imagine maybe a lot of folks who, who listen to their music didn't know about. Uh, so I would really love if you could share uh, how your relationship uh, with him started and uh, how you, you first learned of his involvement in, in the running world. Yeah, that's, that's another great example of how documentary film just gives you this unique access. Um, so we were, at, I think it was in 2012, um, we were standing at one of the aid stations at the Western States 100 Miler that runs out in uh, between Auburn and Squaw Valley in California. Um, it's like the oldest 100 Miler in the world. It's like the original. Um and we were standing there, and it's a big race every year in the, in the ultra like trail calendar. Um, and a friend of mine that I had met through through the running community in the U.S., Joe Grant, um, another friend of his, Nick Trillio, was standing at the um, aid station, and we just struck up a conversation. And he said, "Oh no, I was like, we're like, what do you, you know, it's at stock standard, like, what do you do? What do you do?" He said, oh, I'm in between things, but I've just hooked a summer job as a trail running guide for Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service. And I've just never heard of anything like that. Um, you know, imagine getting paid to take famous people going surfing in tropical places around the world. It's ridiculous. Um, and so it immediately struck a chord in terms of it sounded unique and and I think three years went by um, and we kind of always had it on paper of, you know, that it was interesting as a story. Um, it's like, it's a pipe dream. You're never going to get the permissions to go and do that. And then we uh, we went to Salomon in the headquarters in Annecy one year and we were sitting around the table kind of brainstorming ideas and we just said, um, listen, if we could get permission um, the lead singer of Death Cab, Ben Gibbard, is an avid trail runner, um, and it could be a great piece um, to 
to try get. So like, cool, if you can get that, um, we will green light it immediately. So we went back, mailed Nick, said, listen, Nick, we, we tentatively could do this. And do you think Ben would be keen? And so Nick just mailed Ben, Ben mailed straight back immediately. I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in. That sounds rad. Wow. Um, and so then we just aligned schedules and we met up with them in San Francisco. And we just toured with them for like in just less than a week. Um, and then went back to Seattle where they live and, and filmed around there for a bit. Um, yeah, I just spent like nine days in total just hanging out and yeah, it was an incredible, incredible experience. And he's not just a trail runner either. He runs hundred milers and he's, he's all in. Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, back to, back to the character, uh, like the character thing, right? Like that's, that's an amazing, uh, like peeling away at the onion for the different, the different layers of his life. Um, and so, I, I mean, we mentioned Mira, you, you've done, I think maybe two or three films that feature Ricky Gates, who I think is really fascinating. He, he ran across the country, but you have this really cool film where he's like running through the slot canyons in Arizona and one where he runs every single street in, in San Francisco, which ends up being like a thousand miles or something like that of streets, which is absolutely insane. Um, do you, I don't know if you have like a, you know, it's cheesy maybe to say, but like a bucket list of sorts, but do you have any, are there any people out there in the world that you think like, oh man, I would really, really love to, you know, put their story to a visual or, or to be able to like, um, share their story with the world, like through my lens? Um, to be honest, not offhand. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm quite like, I would, no one would say it now if you met me, but I'm, I'm quite introverted and quite shy. Like if I meet someone, um, mm. you know, for the first time and it takes me quite a while to warm up and, and, and get to know someone. Um, and so the most rewarding experiences are often um, through repetition. So like uh, Ricky, Ricky gave an example and I have a few um, athletes where I've worked with them a lot. And so you just build up um, a very authentic, like trust base of you, you get real with me and like, I'm going to be responsible with what you share with me. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to show you in the best way I can. And so, like you say, the onion metaphor it is a, like, you can just carry on doing the same person and you can just strip, strip back and get raw and raw um, stuff as you go. Um, and so that's been an interesting process just in terms of like social skills, um, mm. just learning about people and really getting, getting a, a, like an insight into what makes them tick. So those, those are mostly the films that I, I find kind of rewarding. Um, and I love, I love old people, um, like people that have lived and have made interesting life choices in their lives and have obviously had the time because the people that I find really interesting are the people that have thought about their choices. Um, and so there's a lot of introspection. Um, it's not, they're not just doing stuff and just going with it. You know, there, there's time to be like, Oh, that, you know, I did that. And 
that's what I took out of that experience and this is what I'm going to do going forward. And, and so you, you meet an 80-year-old person who's made like fascinating life choices that you can't mm. contemplate as a 50-something, um, but you just know you would like to be somewhere in that sphere when you got older. Um, and so you can really learn a lot uh, on a social level and, and a cultural level from those people. So I always find those the most fascinating Um yeah, that's cool. Well, I mean, you're you're going to be one of those those old folks one day, man, because like the wealth of stories that that you're banking in your own personal story bank are incredible. Um, you know, I was thinking of this too because I, I'm not comparing what I do to what you do. Like, I I just I just fumble my way through conversations, and I'm very fortunate to be able to have done them with like really incredible people all around the world probably with a lot of people like yourself who like shouldn't have even given me the time of day, but were very gracious in doing so. Um, but I'm always conscious of the fact that I don't want to misrepresent someone. I don't want someone, you know, because I, sometimes I'm pointing out things in life or lifestyles and interests that are different to the majority of people in the mainstream. So I never want someone to feel like I'm like putting them in a zoo and like uh, trying to, exploit like the weirdness or the otherness of what they do. So I'm always conscious of the fact that like I I need to sort of get this right and if it doesn't work out like I'm not going to publish the episode. Um you know there's no in talking to you there's no like political stakes or anything like that. Um so this is sort of like a a low stress conversation. But I have a lot of those conversations. Um I wonder for you in in telling people's stories is there is there any pressure to get it right? Cuz I even think of like Tabang and you know, there's information in that film yeah. about, you know, socioeconomic issues in South Africa, the unemployment rate, the rates of poverty. Just, I mean, if you if you look at where he lives, like it would be quite shocking to a lot of people who live in, in suburbia, right? So um, do, you, do you feel that pressure at all to represent the, the subject, you know, correctly and to their liking? Yes, um, like you get different projects. Um, and you get different assignments and sometimes you have a, a brief or a pitch that you've pitched um, with certain criteria that's been requested. Um, and then you get projects that are 100% yours that you take and, and, and can convince someone to back for whatever reason. Um, and often those have something closer and are more personal. So there's always a responsibility to be kind and fair to someone. Um, and documentary filmmaking trades that line between sensationalism and reality mm. permanently, right? Um, and so that, you know, but that's no different in any storytelling uh, format, podcast, anything. You, you always want to be respectful of that line and, you know, push that person and challenge them to maybe go into places that they're uncomfortable with and know when to pull them back out of that place when they're really feeling uncomfortable because, you know, discomfort and, and suffering um, leads to growth. So it's not cruel um, to really push someone to think about what their position is. But if it is distressing someone, then to like pull that convo back or take a break. And, mm. and that that's obviously super important because these are just films and you're just telling little stories. And as cathartic or um, healing as they can be, they are just films. The world's not going to change because of one film. 
Um, and so nothing's worth um, upsetting someone over, um, for sure. Like never, like that's, you know, and, and we all have our line um, as, and that's got to be in accordance with your values and ethics and beliefs. Um, I'm not talking about cultural lines. Like I think like we all know what is inherently good and, and what should be done and how we would like to be treated. So that's how I go into my projects. Like how would I like to be in this, you know, if we had to reverse this. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important. And then when you go into the piece like Tabang, like there's a lot of pressure there um, because I'm taking up time out of his life. Um, and it's, you know, immediately when you're taking cameras into that community and putting a spotlight on him, um, you know, people, they don't necessarily understand the mechanics of mm. what's happening um, or like, you know, the, a lot of the community asked if we were going to sell the movie and make money off him. Um, and so you're having very real conversations every day. Um, and so I, I felt, you know, a lot of responsibility to do justice to who he was. Um, I didn't want people to feel sorry for him because he doesn't feel sorry for himself. Um, and I wanted people to see all the good mm. right, in spite of the bad. Um, and I think all of us can take lessons from that. Uh, that's, that's not contained into a socioeconomic bubble. Like uh, we all have issues and we struggle with things daily. And so, you know, it's finding the commonality in the stories that can transcend um, boundaries and, that's what, you know, when we did Sabang, all of that was me pushing the film, wanting to do it, convincing the people to pay, like selling them to pay for it, um, taking up people's time. So then you don't want to come up with something that's not worth watching or um, so for sure. Uh, there's, there's always a form of pressure. Yeah. I'll, I'll start to wrap this, Dean, so you could get back to the kiddo. Um, like I said, People will have the show notes for this episode, so they'll, they'll find your films. But I know that the, the time frame for creating a, a film is quite long. Was there anything prior to the pandemic that you were working on that like people can expect in the future once things kind of normalize? Uh, yes, yeah. I've, I've had, um, so with Ricky Gates, um, we've been working for a couple of years now on a feature documentary of his crossing of America. Cool. Um, so that we wrapped that up, uh, wrapped it up two weeks into the lockdown. So just doing the final touches and finesses and making it look all pretty. Um, that film's called Transamericana. Um, it's a feature length docky. Um, and it's, there's no, it was meant to release in April. Um, but obviously everything's gone haywire in terms of plans. Um, so I'm just waiting to hear what the, what the plan is for that film release. But it will be 2020. I just don't know when at this point. And there will be a trailer dropping as well. Awesome. Yeah, he's fascinating. You know, my, like, the podcasts that I, I like best that I listen to myself are ones where like, I come out of it with like, a list of books or films or people to go check out. And the, the podcast episode itself is sort of like curates all this information. So... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that folks will come out of this and be able to go check out all these people and check out your films and then follow like the, the spider webbing out of information as they, as they learn about all these new stories. Um, but yeah, man, like, so again, thank you. Uh, 
I'm just a dude with like a lot of interests and I've been quite fortunate enough to be able to speak to the people I think are the best at doing that particular, uh, thing or interest. And I, you know, it's, uh, I, I really, really love your films from the cinematography itself, but also like the editing, the music choices that are made in the films, I think are just like spot on and perfect and really help to evoke a feeling, um, you know, I came out of that mirror one almost teary-eyed, like, wow, this, this is like such an incredible person. Um, and then again, like that, that led me to, to be able to actually speak to her this week, which felt really surreal. Like I'm here in Brooklyn and she's in, in a village in Nepal and we're just separated by this screen. Uh, so that was really cool. So yeah, I want to just, you know, thank you for, for your work and, and thank you for, for talking to me today. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate taking the time out of your life to, to chat about mine. That is a wrap on episode number 160 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to all the Voyagers out there for tuning in. Thank you to Dean for phoning in from South Africa and giving me an hour of his time to share his story and for trusting in me to share his story. He's an incredible filmmaker and I think uh, he's a really cool guy. So I really, really enjoyed this conversation. All right, folks. That's it. Thanks again. And as always, please take care of each other. I'll catch you next time.